There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. sick of your lies. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day, I'm Mark Kenny, and this is Democracy Sausage, as you know, of course, because you've logged into it uh, from the ANU, or Australian National University, if you prefer the full name. And because we're talking about Ukraine and Russia, as well as the fact that he's always worth listening mm-hmm. to on a variety of subjects, we're speaking with a defence and strategic policy specialist, Dr. Charles Miller, who's been on the podcast before. He's, of course, from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Welcome back, Charlie. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for the kind uh, kind words and the introduction, and thanks for having me back on. Ah, uh, look, it's always a pleasure. But, of course, what we're talking about today is, I guess, doesn't really fall into the category of of pleasure. It's a, it's a, a very disturbing situation. I mean, talking about war never is pleasant, of course, because uh, war is is the breakdown of of, of order and uh, and the outbreak of violence, and we're seeing that uh, have been seeing that now for a great many months since I think it was Feb- February twenty four uh, this year when when the uh, the Russian uh, tanks rolled across the border, and um, we've been dealing with the fact that you know a putative superpower, still a nuclear superpower, has used its might to roll into a neighbouring country and all of the issues that that has presented. And, of course, it's been a very dramatic uh, last few weeks uh, with uh, the huge gains made by Ukraine, which really surprised a lot of people. I I assume they surprised you as well, if not uh, the fact that gains were being made, but but the sort of scale and speed with which territory was recovered. Yeah, I mean, um, it did. It did surprise me to some degree. So first of all, it surprised me where um, the offensive occurred. So when I was on your show last, I said that most likely the Ukrainian offensive would occur in Kherson, but that we couldn't be sure of that, and that the Ukrainians it was in the it was in the interest of the Ukrainians to leave us kind of in the dark as to where the offensive would come, because that way they would be leaving the Russians in the dark too, yeah, and that's which exactly is generally which is generally what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so the the fact that it came in the north near Kharkiv was actually yeah that was a that was that was a bit of a surprise. And there've been gains, sort of right down that yeah. kind of northeastern mm. uh, sort of frontier between Russian-held ter- previously Russian-held territory and Ukrainian territory. 
They've made incursions quite along a good deal. They have, of, and of what also makes it a little bit surprising in terms of the the speed is the fact that it was still, I think, a, a major unknown about the Ukrainian military as to whether they could um, conduct offensive operations as effectively as they could conduct defensive operations. So we saw with the Battle of Kiev that they were very, very strong in the defense. You know, they could use um, anti-tank um, guided missiles and so on to frustrate the Russians and stop them taking the capital, but. A Offensive operations are a lot more difficult generally than than defensive operations. And why is that? And is that because it involves sort of direct combat? Is it as distinct from using HIMARS to take out, you know, depots and 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 positions behind the lines? Well, I mean, it, first of all, there's a, a natural advantage, I think, for the defence um, in most types of warfare because, you know, at the most, simplest, most basic level, defence is about staying where you are and stopping the enemy from getting there. Or so, you saw, you saw, you saw, so you're dug right. in. Yeah, effectively, yeah. So you can take advantage of cover and so forth in ways that you can't to the same degree when you're when you're attacking. When you're and attacking, when you're on the run. Right, yeah. when you're on the run. You're, you're exposing yourself. Um, you're, you're trying to limit the extent of your exposure, but you're trying to, uh, but you have to at some point expose yourself to enemy fire in the way that you don't necessarily have to do when you're on the defensive. So generally, the offensive is considered to be a more difficult type of warfare than um, defensive um, than defensive warfare. Also, I mean, to be successful under modern conditions, you have to be able to get all types of arms to work together. So by that, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but tanks, infantry, artillery, air power, and so on. Um, if you have air power to call on, you have to be able to get them to work together as a team in order to be able to um, attack effectively. It's very difficult for a lot of armies um, to do this. It was an open question over whether the Ukrainians could do it or not, partly because um, they had suffered heavy losses in um, the original defensive fighting as well. And so a lot of their- the, the Ukrainians. The Ukrainian army, yeah. They had suffered a lot of losses um, of presumably their best trained, most experienced troops. And a lot of the troops they'll be putting in now will be less experienced than the ones um, that they lost in the um, early stages of the fighting. So it was really heartening for all of those, uh, all of us who um, support Ukraine, that they seem to have been able to pull off a really effective offensive against the Russians and taken back a lot of territory, and of course liberated the people in those areas from the terrible terrible things that the Russians were doing to them. So um, it was a surprise both in terms of um, how effective it was and also where it was too. And just staying with this for a moment, the other surprise was, and perhaps this is in a sense the key to how quickly some of that territory was re was regained, was that a lot of Russian troops just abandoned their posts and yeah. abandoned their equipment and ran for the hills kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, basically. Which yeah. speaks to a you know, deeper problem uh, that Russia has in this whole conflict. I, I should, I mean, I should point out that a lot of the troops that the Ukrainians were facing in the offensive around Kharkiv were not regular Russian army. And um, they were from two sources, one of them being the Rosgvardia, which is the Russian guard is what it's called. They're basically a paramilitary riot police. So they are thugs whose job is to beat up protesters and protect Putin's regime. They're not really trained and equipped to face regular soldiers. The other source was um, what's called the military of the LNR. So the LNR is the name for the Russian puppet republic in eastern Ukraine, one of the Russian puppet republics in eastern Ukraine. So these are basically Ukrainians who are conscripted by the pro-Russian authorities in their local area to fight against fellow Ukrainians. And obviously, um, neither of these two forces were particularly well trained or particularly well motivated, and so they folded quite quickly. Having said that, 
I've been hearing a lot of things about the training and the motivation of the regular Russian army, even some of the elite Russian units, which suggest um, that um, they may not be very much better, to be honest. Yeah, so we expected when these gains were made that, I mean, sort of, I guess, you know, normal, ordinary lay opinion would imagine this, that there would be some sort of response that that Putin's not going to take that kind of international humiliation or even domestic potential embarrassment uh, lying down. Uh, and we've seen some responses now uh, in, in two principal forms. We've seen the the uh, the, the call for the, effectively the draft of somewhere between 300,000 and some say as high as 1.2 million uh, able-bodied reservists, although some of them, it turns out, are <laughs> not, not able-bodied. Sort of bodied, yeah, yes, yeah. Um, because it looks like it's all been sort of botched and rushed. And, of course, the other side of it is we've seen, uh, you know, there's no other way of putting it, nuclear sabre-rattling uh, by Putin uh, saying, effectively saying to the world, well, don't push me, I'm not bluffing. Mm. I'm, you know, and this is a, a massively nuclear-armed state. So that's there's some pretty worrying responses. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me talk about the mobilization first of all. Yeah. Um, so the mobilization, what called originally for 300,000 troops, but there are suggestions that they're actually mobilizing more people. Um, it does seem to have been um, very incompetently carried out. So Russian local administrators have basically got anybody that they can get and just shoved them into a recruiting office. A lot of them, like you say, are old the Ill. premise was that they were yeah. meant to be trained. Yes, that's right. right yeah. That is, people who are already Veterans. sort of uh, been trained in military ways. People who were ve veterans of the Russian military were now back to civilian life. Right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, that, well, that proved to be a little bit of a, I don't want to say misnomer, but that was rather misleading, let's put it that way. And um, because they have gone for a lot of people who are not fit for service, very old, have also gone for disproportionately, it appears, um, non-Russian or non-Slavic minorities. So Chechens, Dagestanis, Buryats, Kalmyks, Tartars, and so on, who um, have already borne um, a disproportionate share of the burden for Russia, who are looked down on um, by Russian nationalists. And so you would imagine Imagine that you know any intrinsic motivation that they have to fight is pretty low. Um, in fact, um, they may have a stronger intrinsic motivation to fight against the draft than they do to fight against the Ukrainians. Um, <laughs> let's and, hope you know, so. This, yeah, well, let's hope so, right? So this is this is a problem, and um, we've also seen large um, flows of Russian men of military age trying to get the hell out of Russia. Rushing for the exits. Yeah, I mean, I saw that um, flights from Moscow to Hong Kong or Johannesburg, which is two of the few places you can still fly to directly from Moscow, were selling for as much as 42,000 US dollars. So that gives you some kind of an idea of how desperate many Russian men are get out um so that it can i just stop on that for a sec it surprised me when i started seeing those stories because i thought presumably once there is that draft that that mobilization it's illegal for them to leave but um, is it not i mean it seemed like there was a gap there it is now um it, yeah, it wasn't for a couple yeah. of days now why did they do that i don't know i wouldn't write off administrative incompetence i wouldn't write off the possibility that they just didn't an ongoing it. theme yes, of this exactly. yeah. an ongoing theme of russian administration here but there's also a possibility and and in fact um this is something which i've seen some um experts talk about which is that actually um it probably is in the interest as long as the, the outflow isn't too big it's probably in the interests of putin and the russian army for um people who 
who really, really don't want to serve to get the hell out of the country on two grounds. So first of all, that means that there are fewer people left in Russia to protest against his regime and potentially overthrow it. And secondly, that means that you're not getting a bunch of people going into the army who don't want to be there and who may undermine morale, um, who may serve as a kind of a fulcrum for desertions or mutinies or other kind of infractions of military discipline. Um, so that's a more kind of sort of cunning explanation for why they didn't do that. I that sounds like a silk purse to me. Does, yeah, yeah, it does sound like it's probably not. You know, because, probably I mean, one case, would have thought yeah. the morale uh, effect of, of, you know, vast numbers of people, you know, deserting at that critical moment, <laughs> right. you know, is, 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 pretty, is pretty sort of um, depressing for those people who did get, weren't able to leave and who do get drafted. I mean, yeah, we're thinking what? What are we? You know, mug, right. mugs, uh, soldiers. You know, when other people have had the wherewithal to leave. You know? Where that? I mean, where that um, kind of comes into play, though, I think, is in the policies of European states as to whether they would accept Russian um, draft evaders as um, refugees. So a lot of countries have said, "No, we're not going to do it. You need to stay in Russia. You need to fight your regime." So Estonia um, being an obvious example of this. Um, and that actually, I think that although it's it's kind of heartless, I mean, I um, I have a lot of sympathy for young Russian men who don't want to go and fight in Ukraine. I mean, you know, yeah. I would, certainly wouldn't want to do that in their situation. But nonetheless, um, you want to look at it as, you know, Russia is a kind of a pressure cooker right now. And you want to keep the pressure on. You don't want to give any outlets or pressure valves for the pressure to escape. That's the way that I would think about it. So I actually do think that it is pretty much right for um, your, um, Russia's European neighbours to say, no, sorry, um, you got to stay and fight your regime. Yeah, well, I mean, I must say it's also surprised me in that vein. Uh, this is not strictly about the mobilisation, but the, the fact that uh, wealthy Russians have been able to travel, uh, f you know, for most of the time this war's been going on, they've been able to still go to other countries and, yeah. and you know, be tourists and so forth. One of the reasons that sanctions uh, are often argued against in various situations around the world is that they you know they hit the population more than they hit the government and 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 sometimes they can disproportionately hit the the people who are already suffering most and you know this is one of the arguments people even yeah. tried to run in in the sort of Glen Eagles uh, South African situation many years ago that this was doing harm to the ordinary people even though the ordinary people were desperate for these for the sanctions but it strikes me that Stopping wealthy Russians leaving to go to go and you know lie around swimming pools in 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 hotels of of Europe and Asia and 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 the Caribbean might have been a good way of getting a message to those those people that your government is big time on the nose for, for you know for breaking the law. Right. Well, I mean, there's a, a famous book by um, an economist called Albert Hirschman. Don't know if you heard of it. Exit Voice and Loyalty. Yeah. So he says that you know when you have a um, you know, when when citizens are dissatisfied about what's going on in their in their state, they have um, I mean two major options. So one of them is that um, they can leave, or the other one is that they can exercise their voice to change things. And the two are substitutes for one another. The easier it is to leave, the less incentive you have to use your voice and to change the policy. And so I think that actually preventing um, Russians from leaving Russia is kind of forcing them to say, "Look, you need to do something here." It's increasing the incentives for them to take action against um, against Putin. It's unfair on those people, you know. I don't I don't take any joy in saying that. I don't. I, I'm not with those people who say, well, you know, the Russians didn't protest against the massacres and Bukham and so on, but now they are um, protesting against. Well, I mean, they are, you know, and that's that's how human nature is, right? It's not anything specific to Russia. And and also, you've got to factor in what people know. 
Yeah. Because information is not flowing freely inside Russia about this and it hasn't been for most of the time this war's been going on. Which which brings us back actually to the the mobilization. I mean, the thing that I instantly thought at the moment that it got announced was well, how do you still maintain this fiction that this is a special military operation <laughs> right. when you when you have to draw in three hundred plus thousand? Well, this is another. Military. This is another problem for Russia in the war is that um, it's now impossible for them to try and pretend that they're winning. So research shows that public support for wars, and this, this is primarily in the um, the, the um, American context, is driven by casualties and also by um, perceived um, the perceived chances of victory. So um, publics will generally tolerate casualties as long as they think that the chances of victory are high. What about relevance as an as an issue? Rel- well, yeah, so that's kind of in, in the background. That's not something really that can be changed over the course of the war. So what they think, whether they think that the war is actually um, whether they think that the war is actually worth fighting or not is something that they've already decided on at the beginning of the war. Um, but as the prospects for success recede, support will go down. And I mean, albeit this is research in the American context, but I don't see it being too different in the Russian context. So many people, even those who thought that the war was justified in the beginning, can now see that it's going to hell in a handcart. And um, this is likely to make it more um, likely that they will switch from support for the war to opposition. Um, it will also cause them to bring into question the competence of Putin's government too. Yeah, so, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because but that relevance thing, though, is, is fascinating too because obviously that's something that governments control to some yeah. extent in mm. terms of the narrative that they try and sell to their population at the beginning, and that might be different in in a liberal democracy than it would mm. be in an autocratic yeah. state where mm. they you know simply uh, dictate what the media can and cannot say and and very very closely police you know what public discourse there is about it and that is the, I suppose the contrast but if we think back to you know Vietnam mm. uh, the, the US sold the idea that this was you know the, the domino theory that uh, Russian or communist uh, uh, out states are uh, you know dropping like or states are dropping to communism like dominoes this has to be stopped here and so forth mm-hmm. uh, if we think about afghanistan i mean george and laura bush uh, early on in the afghanistan fight were saying this was about liberating yeah. afghans women and girls yeah look at where the women and girls are now <laughs> yeah right and they did a deal that excluded women in every stage yeah. when they did those negotiations with the Taliban, you know, all those years later and ended up with a situation that's just as bad or worse than it was before. So, you know, I mean, these are all terribly sad tales and we yeah. may be on the cusp of, of, you know, yet more excruciating sadness out of Ukraine. Let's take a quick break there and come back and yeah, talk sure. about that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. 
you can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Uh, you're listening, of course, to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kinney and I'm talking to Dr. Charles Miller. And Charlie, where do you see things going now in terms of uh, this Ukraine war? Because there's there's a, there's a range of ways that we can all see. You know, there's the there's the nuclear threat. There's the gains that have been made by Ukraine. There's the role of the West in in all of that. There's the possibility that Putin now is cornered. You know, he's been described as the cornered bear by a number of people. What does he do? He's cornered, but he's also profoundly well armed. We know the sort of Russian approach to warfare in the past, uh, you know, throw human bodies at it. We're worried that not only will he do that, but he could do a whole lot worse. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me, I mean, starting off with the mobilization. So putting 300,000 men in uniform and giving them a gun is not creating an army. It's creating um, a target, basically. If that's what the Russians do, then the Ukrainians will go through them like a hot knife through butter and they will kill a vast number of them, and but more likely just a vast number of them will surrender or desert. And, and, and why do you say that? Is that is that because of this sort of argument that I've heard put, which sounds pretty convincing to me, that Ukrainians are fighting for their country and Russian soldiers are fighting because, you know, they're, they're either for their salary or because they've been ordered to, which is a sort of a different motivation. It's partly that. I mean, I think that um, those kind of what we call ideational um, motives are important in war. Um, but when it comes right down to it and, you know, you're, you're in a trench um, and the bullets are flying, um, it's quite tempting just to forget about these ideational things and just to concentrate on survival. So one thing, I've, I've never served in, um, in, in the military in combat, but what I do know from, from talking to people who have is that when you are under fire, what they say is the training kicks in. So training instills in you a set of automatic reflexes um, which you will follow if the military's done its job properly will allow you to function, right? To fight back, to fight in ways that will uh, maximize your unit's chances of victory. It's a really good definition of it, actually. I've never heard it put it so quite yeah, so well, well it's, because it's, it's, it's like it replaces those, yeah. those uh, faulty instincts that yeah. you might, an ordinary person might have with some, some more strategic and, and, and purposeful actions that may see you survive. That you don't even need to think about. I mean, yeah. like a, a, an interesting example of this is in the, the 18th century, um, so lots of soldiers would desert back in those days. And one of the ways that, that the authorities would be able to catch them out is because they could tell from the way they walked that they were former soldiers. So you see well, like a peasant walking in one way and a former soldier would walk because they trained, their instincts were so replaced by those of a soldier that um, they couldn't con even conceal it even when it was massively in their interest to do so. And so training is really, really important in these kind of situations. And the problem with um, not training soldiers properly is that instead of having these new instincts, what they have is the old instinct, which is just to run for cover, throw up, throw away your weapons, whatever. I mean, so, and this this would be a problem even if the Russians, um, Russian soldiers believed in the cause that we're fighting for, which I think overwhelmingly for a lot of these people is not anymore going to be the case. So that's why I think you would see this kind of like, you know, hot knife through butter type situation. You know, we saw in the Persian Gulf War in 1991 um, that, you know, that's what happened to large f parts of the Iraqi army. You know, we saw so this. this desert storm. Desert yeah. storm, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, we saw this in um, the Second World War in North Africa in 1914 with the Italians. You know, the Italians were attacked by a much smaller British, Australian, New Zealand, Indian force. Um, so this El Alamein, was it? Uh, no, no, this is prior to El Alamein. This is before Rommel. Rommel was sent by Hitler to sort of stabilize the situation. 
because initially it was just the Italians versus the British Empire and the small British Empire force was just going through the Italians like crazy and they were just surrendering en masse. Um, so this is the kind of um, situation that, that, that we would be talking about if the Russians send them in without proper training. Um, if they give it some time, you know, six months, a year, um, they can quite possibly mold them into a reasonable fighting force. I mean, remember, the Russians did this in 1941 when um, they were attacked by the Nazis and um, they had to mobilize a new army and train it and get it up to speed very quickly. But then, you know, you were you were dealing with, first of all, um, you know, a, a direct threat against their homeland. Um, you were dealing with a much more administratively capable, ruthless state. And you were also dealing with a much larger number of young men, um, both in absolute terms and as a proportion of the population. So um, the, the Russians probably um, won't be able to do that to the same degree. And it doesn't look like they're even trying. It looks like they're basically just giving them two weeks training and then sending them into the, the field. And that's a recipe for disaster. So that's um, the problem with the mobilization. If we talk now about the nuclear issue, because I do think this is incredibly important. So uh, we, we, I seem to see, I see in the media and I see in the way that people are talking about this, a sort of lack of recognition of the seriousness of the situation. Um, so, you know, you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, I was right? going to mention yeah, the Cuban right. Missile Crisis. Before we even do that, though, just to, just to this lack of recognition, yeah. is this just a failure of imagination? Like as in this hasn't happened, a bit like, the, you know, the Queen died recently and 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 even though she was 96, people were kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, okay, that was, some people yeah. were genuinely sad and stuff, but there was this sort of sense of shock. And you're thinking, well, it's just that, you know, there was this, there becomes this kind of unthinkable nature right. of something that's been around for so long. There have never been nuclear weapons used in combat right. since the Second World War. Right. And so it just feels like, even and even yeah, if you think about the Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis, they still weren't used, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that that would presumably change if they actually were used. Yeah, right? it would. It would but change I mean, quick smart. Right, exactly. You know, right now we're still talking about a lot of the same, like, nonsensical stuff that we've always been talking about, celebrities and, you know, various different sort of moral panics and things like that. But instead... Um, you know, we, we should be really taking this seriously. So the Good Judgment Project, have you, do you know the Good? So they are um, a group of kind of amateur forecasters who try and forecast um, world politics and world events. And um, generally they're, 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 they're pretty good. They're not always. Are these what you call accurate. super forecasters? That's exactly the ones, the super forecasters. So I checked out what they thought the probability was of new, of some kind of nuclear weapon being used in this war. They put it at 10%, so one in 10. Now that obviously, Obviously, it's vastly more likely than uh, vastly more unlikely than likely. But still, considering what we're talking about, one in ten is pretty high. Yeah, and especially with the stakes of uh, of it, you know, are huge if it happens. Right. right? So, well, I mean, this is so. This is you know, I I tend to think that that one in ten figure. That's actually the. the I don't want to kind of you know boast too much, but that's the figure that I had in the back of my head as well. One in ten. On the, the anti side, you know, the reason why Putin wouldn't do it, um, don't think it's got anything to do with morals. He doesn't have any. Um, he cares about the only human life he cares about is his own. Um, I'm not even sure he cares that much about these kids' lives. But anyway, that's not that's not a, a problem for him. The the problem is, okay, on the strategic level, um, if he uses a strategic nuclear weapon. So by that, a strategic nuclear weapon, I mean something that's fired from a silo in the in Russia or a submarine um that is a very very big weapon um that would wipe out an entire city that kind of um that kind of thing what this is really what we think about when we think about nuclear weapons as a strategic weapon so if he does this then we are in mutually assured destruction world okay you see nukes new york or something right then the united states nukes moscow that's the end of civilization and more importantly and for the him, nukes get the off and the nukes get off before the 
the, the primary, the, yeah. the, the initial ones even landed. Launch on warning, yep. Yeah. Um, so that I don't think he will do because that is the end of him. That is the end of his life. That is the end of everything that he has worked for, everything he cares about. So I don't think he's likely to do that. When we are talking about nuclear weapons in this context, um, we're talking about um, tactical nuclear weapons. So a tactical nuclear weapon um, is something for use um, on the battlefield, um, not against a strategic target like an enemy capital. Um, and it's designed for use against... Um, soldiers. Um, it could be delivered by an artillery shell, it could be delivered by a bomber, or it could be delivered by a medium-range rocket um, coming out of Russia itself. Um, the size of the weapons would be um, varying from um, about one kiloton, which would be the equivalent of a thousand um, a thousand, ton a thousand um, tons of TNT, um, up to about a hundred kilotons. Um, and this would be um, bearing in mind that most of the tactical nuclear weapons the Russians have um, are on the smaller end of that scale. So there's a small number of very large tactical weapons and a much larger number of um, smaller tactical weapons. And no weapons one's yet. ever used tactical no nuclear one weapons used them, in yeah. battle before. Um, so They've would, only ever been tested. They've only ever been tested, right. So what would this mean? Um, so there's a very interesting website if, if um, users want to, or listeners, sorry, want to go on it, called NukeMap. Hopefully so they're not users. Uh, <laughs> right, right. They're <laughs> not users of nuclear weapons, right? But but what you can do, um, and I carried out this, I carry this exercise out for my students um, when I teach about nuclear weapons, because I think it's useful to really understand what we're actually talking about here. You can select, you know, what the size of the weapon is and so on, and then detonate it over various places and see how many people would die, how far the fallout would be and so on. If you took like, say, a 50 kilo, so I did this the other day, take a 50 kiloton weapon and detonate it in um, the center of Canberra. So that'd be one of the larger Russian tactical nuclear weapons. Detonate it in the center of Canberra, you're looking at about 9,000 casual, 9,000 dead straight away, just with the blast, 15,000 wounded. Um, and then you're looking at a fallout based on the prevailing winds, um, which would extend up to the outskirts of Sydney, past Goulburn, all the way up to Sydney. Um, so that's what you're talking about. Now, if the Russians were to use one of these weapons against the Ukrainian army, however, I think the casualties and the fallout would be quite, the, the casualties would be quite a lot less for two reasons. First of all, the Ukrainian army is much more dispersed over um, the territory than the population of Canberra. The population of Canberra is tightly packed in the middle of the city. So that would mean that if you did that in Canberra, there'd be much more casualties. Um, and second, um, a lot of the Ukrainian army will be in um, heavily armoured vehicles. And um, surprisingly enough, heavily armoured vehicles are actually pretty good protection against tactical nuclear weapons. So you wouldn't be looking at 8,000 casualties. You'd be looking at something like something on the level of half of that. So it would be really- But that's really just a blast, right? Then that's just a blast. The, the fallout. Yeah, the fallout. So the fallout then would probably carry, again, based on the prevailing winds, it would carry back into Russia itself and certainly over Russian forces. Yeah. Um, so it would kill quite a lot of their guys too. But again, but the Russians have a tradition of killing their. Yeah, animals. they don't care about yeah. that. It's, it's yeah. like the you know the movie Braveheart where King Edward is there and he says you know unleash the archers and his um, one of his generals says won't it hit our own men? He was like, well, yeah, I suppose it will, but it'll hit theirs too. <laughs> and that's that's kind of I think the way that Putin would think about it. Um, but you know, so you'd be looking at let's say about three thousand, four thousand casualties. So then the actual military effect of that would not be huge considering the size of the Ukrainian. Um, military and the amount of losses that we're generally talking about. So it wouldn't be enough, just one of them by itself, to turn the tide of the war. It would be more for the shock value of having used nuclear weapons and the prospect of more to come. The aim would be then to get the Ukrainians to negotiate and um, get the Russians to keep what they've already got and get the West to stop 
providing the Ukrainians um, with supplies. Now, this I've heard this described as as a doctrine in in Russian strategic thinking, defense thinking, which is escalate to de-escalate, which yeah. is you basically shock the other side with the sheer sort of purpose and and ruthlessness of of, of an act in order to sort of bring them to the negotiating table and have them make concessions. Mm-hmm. So there's a really good um, there's a really good explainer about Russian military doctrine on the War in the Rocks blog, um, and it and basically says that the Russians believe that you could actually have a nuclear war which is controlled, um, in the sense that you would use each side would use um, just this little bit more nuclear weapons gradually ramp up rather than this immediate. Um, conflagration which would destroy the entire world, you would have some use of nuclear weapons which the Russians would gradually ratchet up um, until the point where their adversary would basically give in and say, this is going too far, I'm going to give you what you want. That's basically um, it, It's the, a really interesting Russians. conundrum though, isn't it? Because the whole, if we think about the fact, as we were just saying before, that none of these weapons have been used for, for, for you know 70 years more, more than 70 years, since the Second World War, and they haven't been used because they're, it's the, the sort of horror of their use has been enough to have the effect, right? There's Once taboo, you start yeah. using them, then that gradual escalation process, you know, that becomes highly impossible to manage, right? I mean, yeah. if, if the West sees Putin using nuclear weapons, then it's no longer theoretical that, yeah. he, that he could go further. Right. It's kind of right. expected, right? It's a strategic right. likelihood. Well, they have to think about this, right? And and the, the problem is, yeah, like I say, there's no evidence because there's never been a mutual use of nuclear weapons in warfare before. So we don't have any evidence to go on this. We only really have speculation, which is why, you know, like it, it's a good idea to dust down a lot of these old Cold War yeah. tomes, these sort of Doctor Strange Love-esque tomes about nuclear deterrence and nuclear theory. You know, your Thomas Schelling's, Herman cans, Bernard Brodie's and so on, and what they think um, would happen in the event of these nuclear escalations. Um, the, the, the problem is um, for the United States, so say Russia has actually used a tactical nuclear weapon okay, um, in the manner that we've just described. So what do they then do? So Michael Coffin, who's one of the top experts on Russian um, and Ukrainian um, military and military strategies, um, he was asked this question and he said, all I would say in that situation is good luck, Anthony Blinken and the rest of the American nuclear um, security team, because I can't tell you what I would do in that situation. So he really doesn't know. On the one hand, um, you could go for, a, um, if you like, a softer response, which would basically be, first of all, and this would probably go without saying, give the Ukrainians all of the help that they can that they can get in terms of managing the fallout. So, you know, whether it be medical help, radiation suits, et cetera, et cetera. So that I would imagine they will obviously do. Would any of that be happening already? I mean, what's that, sorry? Would any of that be provided already? I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. I think we would know if they'd already provided it. Um, but, you know, so that, that would be one obvious thing they could do. Then they could launch cyber attacks against the Russians. So, again, thing is, um, we don't know about cyber attacks. Um, the reason the Americans haven't done it yet could either be, first of all, that they're holding it in reserve and that there's some amazing cyber attack they can do that will really cripple the Russians, but they're holding it back for just this kind of purpose or maybe there just isn't anything there there's there's nothing really serious that they can do to the russians we don't know we can't know because the minute we did know then the russians would find the vulnerability and patch it up so that's another thing they can do um there's also the possibility of secondary sanctions so what that means is basically um you put sanctions not just on russia but also on any business from a third country that does business with russia so that would effectively force china to choose between the united states 
and Russia in terms of its economic links, and presumably you'd imagine they would choose the United States. Um, if, of course, they didn't already put sanctions on Russia themselves for using tactical nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, those are all kind of um, possibilities that they could do. But considering that this would be an end to the nuclear taboo, this would be a breach of something that is in place in order to protect the human race from potential extinction. Um, I don't know if that's enough. And um, so some of the possibilities being discussed by the United States and hinted at in briefings and so on um, include a conventional response against the Russians. This could mean, for example, one thing that's been talked about is that the Americans could launch some kind of a strike, whether it be an airstrike, cruise missile strike, against the Russian unit that carried out the tactical nuclear strike. Um, destroy it. The model there would be 2017 when the US carried out similar strikes against units of the Syrian military that had used chemical weapons against insurgents. So that would be the, the idea. And the reason why you would destroy just that unit is to signal that that's the limit of American conventional involvement in the um, in the issue. So that even yeah. under provocation, there is a sort of an entreaty, right. we're going to we, we take this action, but we're deliberately holding else. back. We're holding back. But of course, else. if the unit has launched from inside Russia, which presumably it would have, then the Russians are going to see an incoming missile yeah, exactly. in, their, well, in their systems. And of course, the whole mutually assured destruction deterrent system. It could be. Is, I mean, I don't know enough about the Russian system to be able to fully comment on that. Um, I mean, presumably they would, um, I mean, you know, they, they would have to suspect that it would probably be a conventional missile, but, but they, I, I don't but know. They, I don't they wouldn't suspect that. They would just see an incoming missile in a s situation where they'd already used a tactical <laughs> nuclear weapon, and they would assume, therefore, that it, they'd ta their risk assessment would be this is an incoming nuclear weapon. I can't say. I can't say for sure. I don't know enough. No, about no, not, neither can I. I mean, this is this is, this the, is thing, the problem. Right. We're, we're we don't. We don't know. So, I mean, in actual fact, in many ways, that would be quite a problematic um, response for the United States. Another thing that they could do is to launch um, airstrikes. Um, cruise missile strikes against Russian forces in Ukraine itself. Um, that might actually even be less escalatory. So what the idea would be to cancel out any kind of advantage that the Russians had gained through the use of the tactical nuclear weapon. Um, that that would amount some, to effectively NATO saying, um, right, we're in this war now. You've, 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 you've pulled the nuclear trigger, we're in this war. Uh, only, well, I mean, what they could say to the Russians is, okay, like, these are the units that we've destroyed, this is the reason, and now we're getting back right. out again. I mean, that's the, so that's the, that's, that's, that's the theory anyway. So you could attack Russian anti, the air defense system, you could attack, um, Russian, um, the Russian Air Force, give command of the skies to Ukraine. Um, but then, of course, that invites further Russian retaliation, right? So that's when we're starting to go up the escalation ladder. So that's why I think that there is this 10% outside chance that Putin would do it because it would present a really difficult dilemma to Western policymakers then in terms of what they do. Now, you have to go, uh, and indeed we have to go. Uh, so let me just ask you this final question. And and again, this, this is just, obviously there's no, no firm answer that you can give to this, but interested in your thoughts on it. Putin's under some pressure inside Russia. Uh, I think that's clear from a range of different things and just from the performance in the war. This nuclear option, this nuclear saber rattling is, is you know, intended to achieve something. He may feel like he's – this is one of the other dynamics that sort of doesn't get talked about much, but he may feel like he's on limited time. That is, he has a closing window to achieve some decisive outcome. And that may also be uh, a motivational factor here that that, that – just in order to stop a coup happening inside Russia, for example, he pulls the nuclear trigger. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, possibly, but again, like I, I think that using a strategic weapon would. Be, well, I wasn't necessarily yeah. Oh, yeah, saying strategic. Yeah, a tactical yeah. weapon, right? So this is this is something that um, this is something that um, is is quite. I mean, is quite plausible. But that said, I mean, you know, I've sketched out all of these scenarios here, and they are quite troubling. But nonetheless, I think that um, Western governments need to stay the course with respect here. I'm not saying at all that we need to start scrambling around giving Vladimir Putin a reward for this. Because if he does, threatening to use nuclear weapons in this kind of situation in a, the context of an aggressive war, if he does not this a good and precedent. gets away with it, is not a good precedent. It's not a good right. precedent. But you mentioned before, we both mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The off-ramp for that, of course, was the U.S.'s uh, decision, the NATO decision to pull t um, missiles out of Turkey. The off-ramp here, it's a, people don't want to talk about this, and I understand why not, mm. but the off-ramp here would be, and we see this plebiscite going on um, that's been going on in the Russian-held uh, you know, Donbass area, an off-ramp might be some sort of negotiated settlement in relation to where the border is drawn. Uh, now, no one wants to talk about it, but if there's no off-ramp, there's a problem. How does the war end if there isn't one? Look, I mean, yeah, I think that they need to – so the West really needs to think about the end state, what they're looking to do and what they're looking to achieve. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, but again, I'm really reluctant to say that this should involve any kind of territorial concessions over what is ultimately sovereign Ukrainian territory. Of course, yeah. Because, I think that, that obviously is a starting yeah. point that everyone has in terms of right. a matter of law and the morals of it, the right. principle. Mm, but, I mean, it could it could relate to something like NATO expan expansion or there could be something that is um, – there could be something um, which is in a, another dimension entirely. Um, but still, you know, being cognizant of the risks, I do think that if we allow Russia – to gain from this any kind of territory, then, I mean, we're just storing up trouble for the future. We're saying to any potential aggressor um, that as long as you get, if you, if you have nuclear weapons, you can, you can threaten to use them and then you can invade other countries, take their territory, and you'll get away with it. Um, and if you don't have nuclear weapons, we'll get some because then you can invade other countries. That gives you that countries. leverage. Yeah. Right. We want other countries um, in the future to say, I don't want to end up like Vladimir Putin, not Vladimir Putin got away with it, so why can't I? Right. So um, I think that um, if we do concede um, in this situation, what we're likely to do, although we may save things for now, and um, we're just going to be dealing with the same kind of situation again in the future. So I think that the West should start thinking about, you know, what the desired end state is and how they can bring this war to an end. I don't think that, that waiting for Putin to be overthrown is really um, a sound strategy because there's no guarantee that's going to happen. So I do agree with that, but um, I think that it would have to involve some kind of off-ramp for Russia that does not mean that they get to keep more Ukrainian territory. Yeah, it's a very difficult one, of course. It's a winter, very difficult one, yeah. I don't, winter I, is coming as well. So Yeah, winter is coming. The, the war will not – I don't think the war will stop completely. Um, no, over the, the Russians keep fighting through the winter. I mean, yeah, right. Exactly. Got yeah, the Ukrainians do too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you know, it's not, it's not the, it's not the, the Middle Ages. Like you can still keep on fighting and supplying your troops through the winter. It's just that it's um, a little bit more Appalling. difficult. Yeah. yeah. All right. Look, uh, we could uh, keep talking about this for so long because there's so many dimensions of it, and we, uh, we'll definitely have you back to to continue oh, this discussion. Yeah. And hopefully, we won't see any uh, horrible negative developments uh, occurring in the interim. If there um, are, I mean, it looks like this is a fairly well sheltered place. This studio, that right. we're in. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. It does. It's almost airless. Which, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's uh, great for a whole range of yeah. other reasons, but it's. Designed for audio. Hopefully, the audio is good. So, Charles Miller, thanks so much for being on Democracy right, yeah. Sausage again, which, as I've said before, comes from the Australian National University each week. Uh, really good to have you here. And uh, 
We'll be back again next week. Until then, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.